If you will remain standing as we read God's Word, a text we will study this morning from John chapter 8. I will not boast in anything but Christ Jesus alone, but I will be thankful for a worship team who has done so well in leading us to the throne this morning to see that. John chapter 8, verse 48 to the end of the chapter. The Jews responded to him, Aren't we right in saying that you are a Samaritan and have a demon? I do not have a demon, Jesus answered. On the contrary, I honor my Father and you dishonor me. I do not seek my own glory. There is one who seeks it and judges. Truly I tell you, if anyone keeps my word, he will never see death. Then the Jews said, Now we know you have a demon. Abraham died and so did the prophets, and you say if anyone keeps my word, he will never, see, never taste death? Are you greater than our father Abraham who died? And the prophets died? Who do you claim to be? If I glorify myself, Jesus answered, I, my glory is nothing. My father, about whom you say is, he is your God, or our God, he is the one who glorifies me. You do not know him. But I know him. And if I were to say I don't know him, I would be a liar like you. But I do know him, and I keep his word. Your father Abraham rejoiced to see my day. He saw it, and he was glad. And the Jews replied, aren't you 50? You aren't 50 years old yet, and you've seen Abraham? And Jesus said to them, truly I tell you, before Abraham was, I am. So they picked up stones to throw at him. But Jesus was hidden and went out of the temple. Church, this is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Thanks be to God indeed. Well, hopefully you are getting in the habit of picking up our little sermon notes there. They're there for your help. Use them as you wish, uh, but they are there. I try to offer some questions at the end, so if you want some further reflection after this is over with, if you want to use them in your DNA groups, that's fine as well, uh, as ways to just kind of get conversation started. But uh, however the Lord leads and uses those things, they're there for your benefit. So last week... We talked about the difference between phony faith and genuine faith. Because, as I noted last week, it appears that uh, we constantly have voices chirping in our ears, saying things like, if you're a Christian, you would be doing. If you're a Christian, you would be concerned about. If you're a Christian, you'd be passionate about. And then fill in the blank, whatever that may be. And yet, and again, we would say to some degree, amen, right? Christians should and can be uh, passionate, concerned, and um, uh, doing a good a matter of things in the world. Those are not up for debate, actually. But the concern that we addressed last week was that when we draw arbitrary lines, and I feel fear in our culture today, we are drawing lots of arbitrary lines. Not that sin is arbitrary, by the way. But we're drawing arbitrary lines on any number of issues, and we use those lines to establish, if you will, a new uh, standard of what it means to be Christian, uh, or a standard of what you might call true orthodoxy, as a true Christian, um, that's not drawn from the clear revelation of God's Word, it does nothing but establish a new law. 
a new law, a new standard that says, this is what it means to be saved. You must believe this. You must act on this or else you're not a Christian. And again, you can discern in your own reflections about where those lines are being drawn. And there are a good number of them in our culture today. But as we said last week, phony faith is anything, anything that minimizes or reduces or alters the life-changing message of Christ, the finished work that he has accomplished on our behalf. And friends, so stunning is this gospel that I want us to, I want us to consider from last week. So stunning is it that I think what we're going to need to wrestle with is we must contend for that message, both in the church and outside the church, because it's just as much of a danger to minimize and to uh, reduce the gospel in the church as it is outside the church, that we must contend for it with all our lives. And that's where we're going to place our attention today, contending and defending our confession, contending and defending the gospel. Jude 1.3 exhorts us, contend for the faith that was once delivered to the saints once and for all. And 1 Peter 3.15 further reminds us, in your hearts regard Christ the Lord and as holy. I mean, above and all of your affections. And be ready at any time to give a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason that a hope that is in you. It's those verses and others like it that call the believer to at all times be ready to contend, to be ready to defend the gospel. But the question that I have and I want us to wrestle with this morning is what does it look like for us to contend for and defend the faith? As we face a world that is increasingly, it feels like, hostile, increasingly more offended by the truths that you and I would hold to as the church. Well, that's going to be our task this morning. The task this morning is to see that in a world that is obsessed, and, and I would even say so far as drowning in this perpetual conflict and division um, and hostility as it relates to the things of God, the Christian contends only, and a big emphasis on only, right, for the hope of Christ and we do so by staying on message. We do so by glorifying God in every day. And lastly, we do by not caving into fear. So those will be the order of our sermon this morning. Stay on message, glorify God, and don't cave to fear. So let's look at that first point. And I've built it out a little bit more. We need to learn to if you're going to defend the faith well, if we're going to contend for the faith well, we need to ignore the insults and stay on message. Ignore the insults and stay on message. Let's look at verses 48 through 51 together for a moment. The Jews responded and it says, they, are we not right in calling you a Samaritan? Are we not right in saying that you have a demon? And of course, Jesus responds, I'm, I don't have a demon. In fact, I, I, I'm, I'm here to honor my father and you dishonor me, is what Jesus says in those first few verses that we're studying this morning. Um, I don't seek my own glory. Rather, there's one who does seek my glory and he does judge. In other words, he will be the judge of this whole matter. Okay? And then he finishes this first in, in, engagement here with, and I tell you, if you keep my word, even the same offer I gave you in verse 31, true disciples are those who keep my word. If you keep my word, even this, even now, as hostile, hostile as you are to me, you'll never see death. 
So what is it that's happening here? Well, of course, what's happening here is this, 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 this debate, this argument, if you will, between Jesus and what was largely viewed as people who said they believed in Jesus. This debate has now escalated into something way more than it needed to be. The Jews start mudslinging. They start name-calling. They start slandering him. They call him a Samaritan. They, they say you have a devil in you. Now, what, what, what's, why is that important? Why do we need to take notice of that? Well, anyone who's, maybe you've been in the church, you understand what a Samaritan is. Samaritans were the people who were in the northern kingdom, and they had, like the northern kingdom, were the first to fall to their uh, neighboring nations, and they intermarried with the pagan religions there, and then they tried to co-opt the Jewish religion, and they said there was different places to worship, and uh, and, and there was a big difference between which mount they would worship on. So all these divisions were between what we call true Orthodox Jews and Samaritans who had accommodated many things of their pagan neighbors, as well as, in some ways, they would say, and I think we would agree, they twisted certain things about the nature of the law. And so the Jews viewed Samaritans as... Well, with extreme prejudice. I mean, like, you couldn't be lower, maybe a tax collector, right? Maybe a Gentile, maybe a Greek. But in all honesty, you couldn't be much lower than a Samaritan in the eyes of a Jew. In fact, they, they so prejudiced was their views, it was almost like we might use the word, they were subhuman. They viewed them as something subhuman. This is what we find all the time is when prejudice rules our engagements with other people who differ with us. And so they called, to be called a Samaritan in this time was a common, colloquial, derogatory statement. You've heard those kinds of things. We have our own in our own culture. And uh, this was what the Jews were doing. They were, they were taking a group of people that they thought very little of, and they are saying, you're like one of them. Now, you, you discern where these things are alive and well in your life or around you in our culture today. But they even elevate it a little bit more. They even go say, and you have a demon. Well, of course, they would say he has a demon because they believe he's, he's forsaken, he's abandoned true biblical teaching, and they would say he's spiritually dangerous, he was mad, just like they would say many of the Samaritans were. In the end of the day, what they're saying about Jesus in order to discredit him is, you're not a true Jew. We do this in a lot of different ways today, in various circles we run in. We even do this sometimes in the church today. And so does Jesus respond, well, I don't have a demon. In fact, he proceeds to go on. He says, I don't have a demon, right? Um, I, on the contrary, I honor my father and you dishonor me. Jesus is going to proceed now to show them that their tactics actually are not defending the truth. They're actually uh, betraying the truth. He's exposing their sins. He says, I am honoring the father and you dishonor me. This idea of dishonor is saying your insults, your denigrations of me, they don't honor God, they don't honor his law. And, and, and how so? Well, because the Jews' conflict with the Samaritan people allowed them to dehumanize them, as I've already mentioned. To see the Samaritans 
um, as something less than them. And, th and by using that, they would, and in the process, anyone that they thought was not part of their group, a part of their tribe, a part of their posse, could be shoved to the side. What they're doing is they're saying to Jesus, if you're not one of us, you are not of value. You, you have no credibility. In the end, what they're doing is they're breaking God's law. They, the ninth commandment says you shall not bear false witness. And bearing false witness is more than just lying. Bearing false witness is the guilt of slander. It's the guilt of demeaning those whom they saw as threats to them or enemies to them, even God. Slander, friends, and cultural uh, uh, denigration of others or people that would differ from us never honors God. Ever honors God. And then he goes on and says, I don't seek my glory. But there is one who does seek my glory, and he judges, and he will judge. The ESV says he will be judge. God will be judge of all this in the end. In other words, what he's trying to get them to say is, you have dishonored your father that you say, your God that you say, by your tactics, by sinning against me, by breaking the ninth commandment, if you will, and you are, don't even realize that, and you're actually calling God a liar what Jesus is saying. I have come to honor him, he says, and him alone. And thus his verdict will ultimately be for me, Jesus says, even though you are against me now. See, even in exposing their sin, though, and I love, this is a, what you gotta love about Jesus, is what it loves about the gospel message even as he's confronting and exposing their sin, what does he end with this first little uh, conflict? Even now, if you keep my word, you won't see death. Again, verse 31 of the same chapter, this is where the whole thing begins, right? Jesus said to the Jews who had believed in him, if anyone continues in my word, and we talked about what that meant last week in terms of genuine faith, you are really my disciples. Jesus, even in all of their assaults to him, and even in all their slander to him, even in, dinner, in, in, in using derogatory statements to him, he doesn't fall into the insults. He doesn't give way to playing the same tactics. We, I fear, do. I've done it. I've done it sometimes sinfully, whereas I'll use the same tools of the world in order to get a foothold in trying to tell the truth. And ultimately, I am not actually helping the spread of the gospel. He's saying to them, even now, in spite of all the things you are saying to me, Truly, I tell you, if anyone keeps my word, he will never see death. In some versions, it says, truly, truly. Now, that word truly, truly is a signal. It's, it's, it's supposed to mean emphatic, compulsory. It's as if Jesus is saying, even now, listen up. The news is still good for you. The word that I bring is still good for you. It can change you. It can offer you new life. Keep my word. I still offer you this hope. I still offer you this deliverance. To never see death, of course, is not physical death per se, but it is 
that spiritual separation from God that will be the ultimate judgment for all men and women everywhere. We will either spend eternity apart from God or we will spend eternity with God based on our relationship with Jesus. Friends, I hope you can see the takeaways for us. I got three. First, the Christian. As we are engaging one another, and those, those, those things may end up in various levels of conflict, or, or if we're engaging unbelievers, or we're engaging in cultural discourse, there is no place where the Christian should have part in slander. There is no place in Scripture where a Christian should have part in half-truth-telling or basis insinuation when they are claiming to defend the gospel, when they're claiming to defend the truth. If we have to lie and not be truthful about, for instance, what our cultural opponents believe about things versus what we believe, if we have to shade or not be honest about what they're saying in order to boister our position, we are not serving the kingdom of God. Can we just say that? We're not. We're not doing that. We're not serving the kingdom of God, nor are we seeking to do what God has commanded us to do, which is, of course, preach the gospel to them. And friends, I would just say the first thing that I take away from this, the thing that the mirror in which I should look in, what I should see when I look in the mirror is, are there evidences in my life where I tend to mudsling, I tend to slander, I tend to not exactly be honest about those with whom I disagree about things, whether that's inside the church or outside of the church? Rather, we need to be, number two, stay on message. It's so important for us today. Stay on message. Get to the gospel. Like, stay there. Like, friends, there are so many distractions for us today, isn't it? It's wearying. So many distractions in our discourse today with other believers. But we need to get to the gospel, friends. It is the only firm foundation on which we stand. So let's ignore the baseless slander, and all the other things. Let's, not, let's choose not to participate, not play by the rules of those around us who are using worldly rules, but rather stay on message, and then last, get the message right. As much as these people are slinging all kinds of things at Jesus, what does Jesus do? He comes right back to verse 31. You can be my disciple if you continue in my word. If you continue in the gospel hope, it's beautiful. Life is only found in Christ. That's it. Period. Hard stop. Nothing else. Be careful, my friends. That leads us into the second point here that he will get into because it's not just ignore them and stay on message, but also recognizing it's, it's not about you. It's not about me. It's about glorifying God in all things. That's what we will see here in verses 52 through 53. Uh, the Jews now think they've got him in a corner. See, now we know you have a demon, they say. Because you say that Abraham, I mean, because Abraham died and so the prophets. And now you're telling me that, that, that if we keep your word, that we don't, won't taste death. Now, 
In that, uh, maybe you notice the slight twisting in words. Jesus says, you will not see death. And they say, well, you're saying that we won't taste death. Now, we don't know if that's just a slight twist in the words in terms of that. We don't know if that's actually there. But, but let's just choose to believe that the, God has ordered it in such a way that we should see that. It's a twisting. Now, whether it's intentional or not intentional by the Jews, it's still a twisting. Clearly, their minds were perceiving him to be speaking about physical death, as we've already noted. They were sloppily hearing Jesus' words. And this is what we do, right? Sloppily hear our theology, sloppily read the Bible, sloppily hear what the pastor is saying, being very sloppy. But what Jesus means by never see death is, is um, big word, eschatological. It has the end in mind. And the ultimate end is, one day, there are those, as I've already noted, who will have be judged either to eternal perdition or to eternal life. And what Jesus has in mind here is not physical death. The body will die and decay, but he's talking about spiritual death. And when he's saying that you will not see death, it means you will not be counted in the judgment to eternal punishment. Words matter. And how we say things matters. How we engage in discourse matters. They go on and says, are you greater than Abraham? Who do you claim to be? Are you greater than the prophets? Now, we all know that Abraham was their father, but the, the question is, is what they believe about Abraham being their father versus what Jesus knows and understands Abraham to be. And that's been the biggest problem here, right? They're claiming that Jesus is a traitor to Abraham, essentially. We all know that. That's what they're trying to establish here. They measured honor. They measured fidelity to the tribe right, of Israel, to the nation of Israel, to God. They measured all these things as, as by Abraham and by his seed, by the nation of Israel. They saw these as preeminent. And, they would, and anyone who would even be slightly critical or, you know, of, or call to genuine reflection within that community, they would be seen as suspect or possibly a traitor, possibly a, in someone who would be about insurrection. But see, friends, Jesus, and he's already established this last week, he's not turning on Abraham. He's not turning on Israel. He's not betraying them. Rather, he's exhorting these Jews to consider more deeply about who Abraham actually was and who Israel actually is. Because they apparently have failed to see that he's calling them to a deeper examination of their own hearts. And so his answer is this. Well, if I glorify myself, my glory is nothing. Now, what he's trying to get at it and of course he's connecting this back to john chapter 5 where he says if you know if i speak of myself and, and my speech my speech means nothing if i if it's all about me and, and he's true what he's trying to say is like okay fine then discredit me if it's, if i'm just the latest cuckoo's come on the cra on, on the corner but what he's saying is in essence is it's it's not about the glory of abraham it's, it's not about the glory of Israel. It's not about your glory or my glory. It's about the glory of God. And hey, if you haven't noticed, this God holds life in his hands, life and death in his hands. And he goes on, he goes, and it's my father, by the way, whom you say is your God. It's he that glorifies me. 
Okay, fine then. If you want to like put me in a corner and you want to just discredit me because you're thinking you're just hearing from me, but you better take notice because it's not just me that's glorifying me. It's the Father in heaven who's glorifying me. And if, and if I cease to bring this message, I too would be like you, a liar. And I can't do that. I too would be breaking the ninth commandment just like you are doing right now. I can't be a liar, and it doesn't matter what you think or believe about me, I can't do that. Why? Because at the end of the day, he would be lying about who God is himself. And what does the first commandment say? You shall have no other gods before me. These Jews effectively have made gods out of Abraham. They've made gods out of Israel. They've made gods out of the heritage of Israel. They've made gods out of themselves. Very similar to what we have seen unfold from the garden, yes? But he's saying, because I've come to obey the Father and do His word and accomplish His word, my Father glorifies me. In other words, what Jesus is saying, you had your chance. In Adam, Adam had a chance to do this, to obey and, and glorify God. And, but Adam rejected God and his law, and he fell into sin, and so did all the, the human race with him. Jesus says, I, I am the second Adam, if you will. That's what, what Paul says in Romans chapter 5, 6, and 7. It kind of builds out the whole picture there. I'm the second Adam. I've come to do what the first Adam didn't do. I'm actually going to do what Abraham didn't do. I'm, I'm actually accomplishing everything Abraham came to do. I'm the one who's coming to accomplish everything that David came to do. I am he. I've come to seek the glory of my Father in heaven, and in turn, my Father will glorify me. Now, isn't that just wonderful? Like, there's a wonderful little cross-section of the interlove and passion and care and glory of the Trinity. That what we have here is this magnificent picture of mutual love and exaltation within the Godhead, and it's absolutely stirring to us. It should be. Not one member of the Trinity operates out of self-will. The members of the Trinity live and exist for the glory of God. That they live and exist for the supreme love and exaltation of the other. The very God in which you and I are made in the image of. The things that should be progressively growing in us as we love other others. So the gospel hope here that Jesus is leaving them with, because he's always trying to show them gospel hope, not just reveal sin, but he's also trying to show them where their hope is, is this, believe in me, believe in Jesus, because I keep my Father's word. It's what it says there, right? You don't know him, but I know him, verse 55. And if I were to say I don't know him, I would be a liar like you, but I know him and I keep his word. The gospel hope that you and I have this morning is not that you keep God's word. Not that Adam has kept God's word. Not that Abraham has kept God's word. Not that Israel has kept God's word. But that Christ has kept his father's word. And the father's word about Christ is, this is my son in whom I am well pleased. That's the word of the father about the son. This is so wonderful 
That the gospel hope is right there if they'll take it and listen and receive it. That Jesus, this word made flesh, is the one who keeps God's word. That Jesus is the word that always tells the truth. That Jesus is the one that where you and I are destined to death, he is being sent from the Father so that you might receive the offer of life. And I might receive that offer. Now, again, I, I want to pause after each one of these points and just kind of think through this about what this means for you and I and maybe what we can, perhaps can take away from this. I think from, the, from a law perspective, the sin perspective, seeing what maybe we be revealed, maybe even our own hearts here, should Paul give us pause to, and ask the question, are, are we or do we tend to live in echo chambers around us? And what I mean by that is, that's essentially what's going on with Israel. That's essentially what's going on with the Jews. They were living in echo chambers of people just like themselves, so that then while doing that, they can insulate themselves from all their enemies and therefore not have to be subject to any real examination of themselves. And I'm fearful that Christians fall into the same types of things. Jews had created these echo chambers by putting down others who differed with them, which again, insulated them from being a being about true examination of themselves. Church, for, uh, church, the, the church should be the first of all peoples willing to examine ourselves in light of God's word. First to examine ourselves in light of what true sin is in our life. We don't need the culture to reveal to us our sins. We need the scriptures and the spirit to reveal us our sins. But where we see sin alive and well, both inside the church and out in the world, we should be the first to slow down and be willing to examine ourselves and expose the sins that are true sins and begin to turn and rest in the grace of God. One of the hard topics to talk about these days, and I've, I've mentioned it here before, is to talk about the issue of race today. And, and, and it's hard because even in a risk right now, someone misunderstanding what I'm about to say. I, like many pastors, find that there's a lot of troubling talk about what is and what isn't racism today. I want you to know that. In fact, there's a lot of things that are out there that are classified as racism that I don't believe actually is racism, prejudice, or partiality. I think the culture, if we're not careful, is resetting the definitions right in front of us, and they're using things that should be things the church pays attention to to reset those gauges. And they're establishing in, by way, a new form of justice, right? So I want you to know, I absolutely believe this is an issue, and, and I'll go so far as to say this, that if everything is racism, nothing's racism, right? I, mean, I think it, ultimately we have to be honest about that. But even in saying that, we must, as believers, understand that the Bible is very clear about partiality. The Bible is very clear about prejudice. The Bible is very clear about racism. And that those things are not birthed out of the image of God that God has made us and designed us to be. And so when I say the church should be the first to the plate to self-examine, when we do, we offer a better clarity on what justice is. We offer a better picture of what it means to be people reconciled in Christ and reconciled to one another across all socioeconomic and ethnic boundaries, whatever they mean. To the world has flimsy views of justice that pales in comparison to the justice that is clear in Scripture. And friends, I want to make sure I say that. 
And so where real sins of partiality, where real sins of prejudice, where real sins of racism exist among believers, and where real sins of partiality, racism, and prejudice exist in the world, the church, just like we do a number of other things, should be the first to say, this is wrong. This is sin. It has no, certainly has no place in the church, and we would urge the world to know it should have no place in a society that says that all people are created equal under their God. Yes? We, when these real sins are there, we should be the first to be bold. We should be the first to be humble enough to both self-examine ourselves, evaluate where those things may or may not be real in our own churches or in our own lives, but we should also be the ones to say, because of that, we can actually tell you what real racism is, what real partiality is, and what real prejudice is, not the flimsy definitions that the culture's trying to hand us right now. Okay? Because they are flimsy. And I believe some of it's even demonic because it's trying to slide something under the door and reset the narrative. We must be careful. We must be careful. Why? Because the church makes the glory of God the entire aim of our lives. Not anything else, not all the silly little cultural arguments, but we make the glory of God the entirety of our lives, that this is the entirety of our defense of ourselves and through the world by forsaking anything that would detract from the glory of God and getting to the truth of God's word so as to not become an unnecessary barrier to people hearing and seeing and receiving the gospel. Paul has the same idea in Colossians 3, in all things glorify God. Paul goes on and says, if it, I be a Jew to the Jew, it be a Gentile to the Gentile. Why? So that all may receive and hear the gospel of Jesus Christ. This is what we are called to do, regardless of our consequences, regardless of the ideological tribes that we tend to run with. All these things pale in comparison because we run with Jesus. Let's be truth tellers in everything no matter if it costs us on one side or costs us on the other. Because we run with Jesus. And Jesus alone. It's not about me. It's not about you. It's about the glory of God. When we're defending and contending for the faith, it's not about you. It's not about me. It's about the glory of God. That leads us to the last point. Don't cave to fear, but remain clear. Yeah, I love that, right? A little bit of round rhyming going on there. Don't cave to fear, but remain clear about Jesus. In verses 56 through 59, to finish out the chapter, Jesus continues on their own argument about the fact that, uh, this argument about he's betraying Abraham. And he says in verse 56, actually, your father Abraham, he rejoiced to see my day. He saw it and he was glad. And what's Jesus trying to do there? Well, what Jesus is doing is returning back to their concern that, he, that he's claiming to be Abraham or that he's dismissing Abraham. 
And, and they were using this, Abraham, to discredit Jesus and then be able to put him outside of credibility. But Jesus says, Abraham was looking for my day. That's the real Abraham. Not the one you concocted. The real Abraham was looking for my day. He was looking for Jesus to come into the world. The real Abraham's true identity was not in himself. The real Abraham's true identity was not in Israel or this, his genetic seed. No, his true identity was following, in, following the God of promises and to set his sights on looking for their revealing. Hebrews 11, verse 10, Abraham looked for a city whose maker and builder was God. This is a testimony of the New Testament about who Abraham truly is. He saw it, Jesus says, and he was glad. He was glad. Now, this doesn't mean when he says he saw it, Abraham, that he himself somehow or another was transported like some kind of, you know, thing that we see in Star Trek or something, and he saw it, you know, and he saw the realization, the full realization of these promises. What it means is that the historic understanding of the church is that God's promises were not given to a temporal people, i.e. named Israel. Rather, the real meaning of it is that it's about Israel being a unique people of God who was a type and shadow of the full people of God, the one people of God. So there's not two peoples of God. There's one people of God under the redemption of Jesus. The people of the old covenant hoped in their Savior to come. That's what made them the people of God. Not circumcision, not genetics, but their hope in the Savior to come. The people now, you and I, post-Christ, after Christ, as waiting for his second advent, we're people who've hope in the promise kept in Christ. Galatians 3 makes it crystal clear. I want to actually read it straight from the text to this site myself so that you see it. Galatians 3, verses 6 through 9. Just like Abraham who believed God and it was credited to him for righteousness, righteousness, you know then that those who have faith, these are Abraham's sons. Those who have faith. Faith in what? Christ. So whether you are a son prior to Christ or a son after Christ, you are a true son if you what? had faith in Christ. Faith in the coming Redeemer or faith in the one who has come? This is what it means to be the people of God. I'll keep on reading. Now the scriptures saw in advance that God would justify the Gentiles by faith and, and proclaim the gospel ahead of time to Abraham. So the gospel was proclaimed to Abraham ahead of time. All the nations will be blessed through you. Consequently, those who have faith are blessed in Abraham. So in other words, he's saying it was never about two peoples of God. It was about one people of God who lived by faith. No matter what their dispensation was, if you will, unfortunate term there, but that, you know, was in terms of where they were standing in terms of times and epochs. Friends, Jesus is making it very clear. He saw my day not as 
literal in the sense that he himself was teleported, but in the fact that he was rejoicing in the future advent of this Christ who was to come. Jesus is the same, the Old Testament and the New Testament have the same Savior. Plain and simple. The confessions of the church bear this out throughout history. Unfortunately, that some, somewhat has gotten muddied in the last two or three hundred years, but it's, but it's still no less true. And so the Jews come back to him, and of course, they're going to do everything they can to try to like not hear Jesus, right? Well, you're, you're, only, you're not even 50 years old yet, and you say you've seen Abraham? And of course, Jesus comes back and he says, and this is the statement of all statements, right? Truly, I tell you, before Abraham was, I am. Again, it seems like what they're doing here is they're twisting or deliberately misunderstanding Jesus. Have you ever found yourself in an argument with someone or maybe a strong debate, maybe with your spouse, and you're listening, but you're only listening for ways in which you can better argue with them? Am I alone in this? Oh, you're liars. Come on. Like, so seriously, like we've all done this, right? We've done this. We, 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 we listen, but we don't listen. We listen so that we can better get them and put them in the corner. And this is kind of what I think is happening here in these, among these Jews, right? And so Jesus makes it and probably makes the most unambiguous statement about himself to date in John. Before Abraham was, I am. Of course, we talked about who I am was, right? It's the same I am who revealed himself to Moses at the burning bush. And who am I supposed to say who sent me? Tell him I am sent you. So Jesus is being unambiguous, as I said last week. Unambiguous as to who he is. He is claiming without any fail, in case you were wondering anything about this, Jesus is not just a prophet. He's not just a good teacher. He is the divine son of God. He is the God-man Jesus Christ. Fully man, fully God, but he is nonetheless the second member of the Trinity. So whatever was unclear to them at this point, friends, I can guarantee you there was no unclarity at this point because everyone realized exactly what Jesus was saying. Why? Because they what? They picked up stones. They were ready to like end it right there. They were ready to just put it down. These seemingly believing Jews just a few verses ago are not believing now, at least not believing by faith, but they're seeing and hearing the truth right there in front of their eyes. The point is very simple, right? Jesus is not afraid to expose who they really are so that they can see who he really is. He, he was exposing who they really are so that they could see who he really is, and they would have a choice of either what? Accepting him or rejecting him in that moment, right? Right? And he was going to not let them be able to kind of live in some kind of nuanced, ambigu ambiguity, um, amb ambiguous situation. Isaiah 42, verses 1 through 4, uh, which is what is referenced in Matthew chapter 12, we find kind of what's kind of, it kind of gives us some help here. Matthew chapter 12, verses, um, like I said, verses, uh, what did I say? One through, uh, is, is verses 12 through 17 through 21. Uh, Isaiah 42, 1 through 4 actually is quoted here. And Jesus is saying, here is my servant, Isaiah, 
I mean, Isaiah is saying, Here is my servant whom I have chosen, my beloved in whom I delight. I will put my spirit on him, and he will proclaim justice to the nations. He will not argue or shout, and no one will hear his voice in the streets. He will not break or bruised reed. He will not put out a smoldering wick until it has led justice to victory. The nations will put their hope in his name. Jesus is saying that the man that Isaiah is speaking of, he is that man. He is the man who's sent in the spirit, and he is there to set the captives free. He's setting the captives free as the ultimate act of justice, in case you didn't know that. Any justice in the world that you and I might seek has to start with and end with the cross of Jesus Christ. End of discussion. And he says, by using this, this uh, healing a demon man right there in the passage right after it, he comes back to this idea about the spirit, this man with the spirit, and he says in... Um, what is it there? Verse uh, 40 or 32. Whoever speaks a word against the Son of Man, it will be forgiven him. But the one who speaks against the Holy Spirit, it will not be forgiven him, either in this age or in the one to come. Many refer to this as the unpardonable sin. It's the only unpardonable sin in Scripture. What Jesus is saying to these Jews here in chapter 8 is very reminiscent of what's going on here in Matthew chapter 12. He's saying to them, the Spirit of God is upon me, as he said in Luke chapter 1, he first preached there, chapter 2, excuse me. The Spirit is upon me, and you're rejecting the Spirit's revealing of me. And because you're rejecting the Spirit's revealing of me, you ultimately will not see life. You will not receive the offer of life. You will receive death. So when they're picking up stones, believe me, they understand exactly what Jesus is saying. By saying, I am, Jesus is inviting them to rest in him yet again. In spite of their hostility towards him, the great I am, who is the one who what? Condescends to mankind through that burning bush. Reveal himself to Moses. That great I am is the, is, is the same as Jesus. And he condescends to us so that we might find rest in Christ. And we might find rest through his gracious and bountiful covenants. Well, that we might find whose presence, is, whose, whose presence is consuming and like a fire. That we might find rest in the one whose judgment is just. That we might find rest in the one who, whose plans are unalterable. And that gospel was too offensive for them to receive. That's where we ended. These Jews that believed find the Gospels too offensive for them to receive. Friends, let's be reminded as we walk through this text that the same is true today. Let's not allow the offense of the Gospel to give way to fear. It's easy when we start seeing people proverbially start picking up stones and casting it at us to want to apologize for the gospel or to accommodate the gospel. That social intimidation that we see all around us today is nothing new. The world will find... It's so, I'm sorry, it's so easy for us to, to compromise the gospel in a culture that constantly asks us to accommodate to their truths. 
their new morality. Because aren't you, but aren't you supposed to be loving? If you're really loving, shouldn't you accommodate to our new truth? And if you think it's new today, it's not. It's been there since the beginning. It's easy as well to short sell the gospel so that we can have short-term gains in the church by having lots of numbers in the church and lots of giving and being able to build nice large facilities and doing all these wonderful things for the, for, for the church. Now, again, none of those things are wrong. But we should never short sell the gospel to accomplish them. It's also easy to add to the gospel. It's easy to add to the gospel so that we might find more credibility in the tribes that we like to run with. So we add all kinds of things to the gospel, whether, again, as we've mentioned many times, culture or, 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 or politics or, or, or any other number of things. Friends, we should not give in to social intimidation. And I don't mean giving in to social intimidation as that you've got to go out there and you've got to prove that you're not going to be intimidated or that somehow or another you've got to be that guy on Facebook. Don't be that guy on Facebook. Please, for the love of God, don't be that guy. But, 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 but you don't have to be intimidated by the culture's whims. You, all you have to do is what Paul says in 1 Corinthians, embrace the foolishness of the cross. Cling to the foolishness of the cross. And as you do... Be clear about the foolishness of the cross. Be clear about the good news. Don't shy away from the good news. Even if you already assume the outcome of what people may or may not see and you think, oh, it's all bleak, still share it nonetheless. Oh, that's so hard, right? When you just know they're going to reject you, when you just know that they're going to be like, eh, whatever. Or worse, haul you before the tribunal culture and get counseled these days? Like, it's hard, right? But you do it nonetheless. Even if you assume, or you know it will cost you, whether it's socially, fiscally, or otherwise, do so for the sake of Jesus. Friends, as we finish up this morning, defending genuine faith boldly calls us to three works. Three works. One, exposing real sin. Not culturally contrived sin, exposing real sin. Two, calling for true contrite repentance that can only be provided in the Spirit in our lives. And three, offering a real Savior that saves sinners. Defending the faith, keep the message, keep to the message, glorify God, and don't cave to fear. May God be glorified this morning, the reading and preaching of his word.